Hear the word of the Lord to his people from Titus chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then moving to chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, as you now know, Christ Church, Halifax, we're celebrating our, our first anniversary, first birthday. I'm not quite sure the, the correct terminology yet. But we've officially been having weekly worship for a year. Uh, and this is a, a really exciting day for us um, and a great reason for us to celebrate. But um, I'll admit, our passage this morning doesn't quite seem to fit the celebratory vibe, does it? Um, it's not really a passage talking about God's faithfulness. It's not a nice passage uh, filled with, with praise and thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done. R- really, at least in chapter 1, it's not really even a passage where the gospel is central. All of which w- would seem to be very fitting anniversary birthday passages. Instead, we have a text that deals with false teachers. A text that that forces us as a church uh, to look and and deal with the lies and deception within. Um, What a way to celebrate, right? The truth is, uh, no one wants to talk about their own problems. It's uncomfortable. Especially today, wouldn't it be better to just focus on the positives? While uh, our text today may actually be more fitting than we first realize. While the gospel may not be the focus uh, of these verses in chapter 1, It is certainly the foundation for why Paul is writing to Titus in the first place. Ultimately, it is the gospel at stake. The reality for us as a young church in Halifax, if we want to celebrate a second year, if we want to celebrate a fifth year, a 25th year, if we want to see more babies baptized, more adults baptized, if we want to see people grow in their faith and our city changed, if we want to see Christ Church grow up and out, We will need godly elders and people who have the courage to pursue godliness in a world that is opposed to it, and leaders who stand up to false teaching, protecting the purity and peace of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we take a closer look at at the verses here, just just a couple of quick notes. This morning I'll mention the church quite a bit. What I'm most often referring to is the global church, the, the big C church, if you will. Of course, Christ Church Halifax is part of that global church. And so problems that arise in in the church at large are likely 
to impact us here at some point. Second, this passage fits within the context and topic of elders, which we started looking at last week. Calling out false teachers, rebuking them, and protecting the congregation is primarily the role of elders. If you were here last week, you'll notice the description of false teachers in our verses today contradict directly with the description of what elders should be. Whereas elders live out and teach the truth, false teachers deny the truth and negate their profession of faith by their conduct. Now that's not to say that that each of us don't have a part to play, but it is important to remember the context that we find ourselves in. So with that being said, let's look uh, at this passage, and we're going to do so in two parts. Fairly simple, who are the false teachers? That's number one. And then how should the church respond? So number one, who are the false teachers? And then number two, how should the church respond? respond. And we'll start with who are the false teachers. So in verse 10, the first thing we notice is that we're told that there are many false teachers. This is not one or two people. It's not just a handful of people, some rogue person or a group. Rather, there are many. There are a lot. It's a significant number of people who peddle a false gospel. It's a large contingent, and it's so big of a problem, we read in verse 11, that It's upsetting whole families. These problems have taken root. They've begun to spread and are now ultimately dividing families. The second thing we notice, verse 11, is that their motives are wrong. So uh, there's many false teachers, but their motives are also wrong. Uh, It says that they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. These are people who who haven't simply made a, a little mistake. Um, These are not minor errors. They are manipulating and using people for their own personal gain. It could be financial gain. It could be fame. It could be power. It could actually be just to soothe their own souls. But the message is twisted for their own purposes. This is unfortunately something we've seen all throughout church history. Maybe most famously before the Reformation when the Pope at the time, his name was Pope Leo X, he commissioned a man named Tetzel to sell what were called indulgences. And essentially, this taught that money could ultimately reduce the punishment and penalty for sin. In reality, this money funded the luxurious lifestyle of church leaders and new building projects that they championed. Unfortunately, this is not something that's just been in the past of the church, but it's something we still see today. The prosperity gospel is alive and well and still incredibly influential. It peddles the belief that correct living and giving will lead to material blessing from God. So if you give enough, if you pray enough, if you follow enough of the rules, God will bless you with money and material gain. Now, one of the saddest things about this is that it's often done on the backs of the poor and weak who are hopeless and seemingly have nowhere else to turn, while those in power live lives of luxury. We only have to look at Christ uh, to refute this. Uh, He lived perfectly in every way. He fulfilled the law, obeyed perfectly. He gave up his life, though he was innocent, and yet he was abandoned. He was beaten. He was mocked, eventually killed. He lived not a a life of riches, but relative poverty. He was born in in a stable amongst uh, animals, and then in Matthew 8, we read that foxes have holes 
The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus, does not have a place to lay his head. Or look at the apostles. Almost all of them were persecuted and eventually killed because of their faith. The prosperity gospel is a lie filled with half-truths and false promises. So there are, are many false teachers. Their motives are wrong. But the third thing we notice is that their message is off. It's a faulty message. They're opposed to the sound doctrine that Paul speaks about in verse 9, which we looked at last week. Rather than teach sound doctrine, verse 14 tells us they teach Jewish, Jewish myths and man-made commands, and they turn away from the truth. Their tactics are often sly, half-truths, false promises. At times, admittedly, it can be difficult to put your finger on exactly what is wrong, but something is off. For instance, in the Mormon church, the Book of Mormon doesn't replace the Bible. Rather, it supplements it. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in God, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The plain truth, just slightly twisted. And maybe those are, those are easier to spot. But even for those here today who may not be seduced by the prosperity gospel, the Mormon church, or Jehovah's Witnesses, there can still be trouble. We live in a culture that is unfortunately much like Crete, where many who, who claim to follow Christ promote lawlessness. They seek to undermine God's word and his commands. The authority and reliability of scripture is slowly but constantly questioned. And what's so interesting about this is that the context and culture of our world has changed, but the tactics of false teaching remain the same. I mean, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Um, what does the serpent say to Eve? You'll find this in Genesis 3, but the serpent says, did God actually say that? Surely, right, he couldn't have meant that. And the seeds of doubt are sown. This is the same refrain we see throughout history and is still rampant in our culture today. Did God actually say that? Surely, he couldn't have meant that. It's incredibly tempting to try to undercut and undermine scripture to align more closely with what we want or what culture says is good. But if we do that, what ultimately are we left with? Well, th there's an old movie. It's called The Stepford Wives. I don't know if you've seen it. Probably not too many people have. It wasn't that good or that popular. But <laughs> the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, they decide to have their wives turn into robots who never crossed the wills of their husbands. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant, beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens for us if we eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? And the answer is, you won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God of your own making, and not a God who you can have a real and genuine relationship with. There are many who are tempted to twist what the Bible clearly teaches so that it can be more palatable to the culture around us. But as false teachers do that, they end up with a God of their own making. Now, I admit, the, the pull for us to follow such people, it is strong. 
navigating these challenges in our culture today, it's not easy. As Christians, we're under constant pressure to only practice our faith in private, and people are under pressure from employers, colleagues, and families, and friends to reject certain aspects of our Christian faith. Navigating how we live out our faith amongst a world that is growing increasingly hostile to it, it is difficult. It comes with pain, it comes with uncertainty, it comes with rejection. The temptation to give way to the pressure is real. But what kind of God are we left with if we do that? Lawlessness is a real and pressing issue for the church today, which we must be ready to correct. But on the other hand, there are those who peddle legalism, people who love to emphasize obedience and man-made tradition while forgetting the grace and forgiveness that they themselves have received. Rather than be filled by the Spirit, they're filled with pride and anger, resentment. They're quick to look down on those around them, and they seek to bind people's consciences with extra-biblical commands which add to what Christ has already accomplished. Christ's strongest word in scripture are for those who peddle the false gospel of legalism. Their hearts are cold, unrepentant, and ultimately opposed to the gospel. Whether it's lawlessness or or legalism, each of us must answer the question, are we more interested in having a faith that is palatable to the world around us? A faith that aligns with our tribe or our political party? Or do we want a faith that is living? is active, that is obedient to scripture. So who are the false teachers? We notice there are many. Their motive is wrong, their message is off, but we also notice that their character is awful. Verse 10 tells us they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. In other words, they're rebellious. They don't like authority and choose on their own what is right and wrong. More than that, Pastor Alistair Bagg, he makes the point that they are not only rebellious, but they themselves demand a slavish obedience to what they believe. As commands are are taken away, as others are added, false teachers demand your adherence to the new normal. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, as verse 16 tells us. False teachers, then, they make the perverse normal. They celebrate sin and disobedience to God's commands, even while claiming to follow Christ. Ultimately, they reject the ethics and kingdom values of Christ, opting instead to set their own rules to justify their sin. But there are yet other false teachers who can look put together on the outside, but when out of the spotlight, behind closed doors, live dreadful lives. We see this in various ways in the church today, sadly, but particularly in regards to abuse. Both sexual abuse and abuse of power is seen far too often in the church today. Leaders use their position of leadership to take advantage of other people. The Apostle Peter warns us of this, that many will follow their sensuality, and because of that, the truth will be blasphemed. In his article, Seven False Teachers in the Church Today, um, Tim Challies writes that the abuser claims he is tending souls, but his true interest is ravishing bodies. When he is not pursuing illicit sexual pleasure, he may be domineering people to gain power, abusing them on his path to prominence. He does this in the name of ministry, with the claim of God's anointing. 
He unapologetically uses and abuses others to feed his lusts. Their character is awful. So how should the church respond? And this leads us to our second point. Now knowing who false teachers are, what should the church do? Our answer begins in verse 11, which tells us that they must be silenced. This word for silenced is essentially the same as muzzled. They must be stopped from speaking and spreading and influencing the church with false ideas. Then verse 13 continues and tells us that they must be rebuked sharply. Right? They must be corrected and the false teaching must be critiqued and exposed. Why are they to be rebuked? Well, ultimately to protect the church. But more than that, verse 13 tells us that they are to be rebuked so that they may be sound in the faith. The goal of rebuke or discipline is that they would return to the truth. The goal of all church discipline is restoration, a return to the promises of the gospel. The book of church order, that's actually the governing document for our denomination. It tells us that discipline is to vindicate the honor of Christ, to promote the purity of his church, and to reclaim the offender. Discipline is always done, rebuke is done, so that the offender may return to Christ and find forgiveness and rest in him. So how ought the, the church carry out this work? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells leaders to correct opponents with gentleness so that they might repent. Elders then must confront false teachers, albeit with gentleness. They must refute the error and do so negatively by calling out false doctrine, but also positively by teaching and promoting sound doctrine. This process takes wisdom and discernment. Someone can be very wrong about a particular point of doctrine and still be a Christian. Paul and Peter had significant disagreements, but they did not question whether or not God had saved the other. Not every disagreement makes someone a heretic or a false teacher. The elder's job is, in one sense, to undergo a theological triage of false beliefs they encounter and then carefully and charitably respond. John Calvin gives some guidelines and speaks of a certain charitable judgment whereby we recognize as members of the church those who by confession of faith, by example of life, and by partaking of the sacraments profess the same God and Christ with us. Calvin here provides three concrete, publicly accessible ways to discern someone's faith. Do they confess the faith? Do they live lives that match up to their confession? And do they partake of the sacraments? This is a good place for church leaders to start. But Calvin does go on to say that charitable judgment still means judgment. Issues and problems must be dealt with, but the church must do so with great care. What Calvin is saying is what we find in verse 16 of this passage, and, and really what Titus is all about. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Right doctrine, correct doctrine leads to right living, correct living. Verse 16 uh, tells us this negatively, that they who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. So, so Paul is reminding Titus, he's reminding the church in Crete, and he's reminding us here today that how we live matters. That those who profess faith in Christ are called to live lives of faithful obedience. That is not to say 
we're saved by our works. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, refutes that clearly. But it is to say that those who confess faith in Christ are called to live lives of obedience. But this all leaves us with a bit of a problem. As I mentioned before, we, we live in a culture that isn't all that different from Crete. We're tempted by legalism and lawlessness and to follow those who promote those things, just like Christians throughout history. And yet Paul is still calling us to a higher ethic. How we live ought to match what we confess with our mouths. What will make us into people who desire the truth? What will make us into people that are eager to live obedient lives, grounded in the truth of God's word? The ethic, the desire that Paul is calling the church to would be impossible if not for the appearance of the grace and loving kindness of God in the purpose and work of Jesus. You see, the only source powerful enough to change people like Cretans or to change people like you and me, the only source powerful enough to grow and guide the church is the transforming love of the one true God. This is what we read in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope, according to the hope of eternal life. This is the good news, that we are not saved by our own works, but through Christ. Christ has given his life for ours, even though we're naturally rebellious people who constantly try to reject his clear commands. Christ has given his life for ours, even though we are people who try to add our own rules and regulations to Christianity to maintain some semblance of power over our lives. We are rebels, yet... Christ willingly gave up his life so that anyone who turns to him in repentance and faith will be saved. And as verse 5 tells us, we can receive renewal through the work of God's spirit. Our affections, our hearts can be changed through the work of Christ and his spirit. Look at Paul, the writer of this letter. He was once someone who was extremely opposed to the message of Christ. He was a zealous legalist that went so far as to kill other Christians. And yet in mercy, he was saved. He was washed and regenerated by the Spirit and given the hope of eternal life. The implication of this good news that we find in chapter 3 is that through the saving work of Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit, people really can change. You don't need to, to, to wage war on culture or assimilate to culture to do this. Rather, the grace of God trains us on how to live out spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings and ethics of Jesus within the world. And as we live out this counter-cultural gospel in reliance on the spirit, you'll declare God's goodness and grace to your family, neighbors, co-workers, and friends. In different ways, false teachers try to chip away at the good news of the gospel. They teach us that in pride, we can save ourselves by either following all of God's commands perfectly in our own strength, or by ditching God's commands for the cultural ethic of the day. Both of these tendencies leave us with a God far different than the one true God 
who reveals himself through scripture. The harsh words reserved for false teachers that we see in this passage today and we see throughout the New Testament are necessary so that we do not lose the glorious gospel and the good news that it brings for sinners like you and me. We have no other hope than that found in Christ. Just a couple of quick points of application before we finish. As Mike mentioned last week, uh, please pray. Pray for Mike and the future elders of Christ Church that through the power of the Spirit, they would love Christ deeply. And in loving Christ, they would be upright in character, sound in doctrine, able to protect the purity and peace of the church. Pray that God would give them wisdom as they navigate the difficult realities of our culture today. Additionally, this is a wonderful reason for for each of you to dive deep into discipleship. We need elders, but we also need to be a church that loves Christ deeply and in loving Christ deeply desires to be upright in character, sound in doctrine, and fluent in the beauty of the gospel. Weekly worship, home groups, service projects, and other church events are wonderful opportunities to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord and to share that good news with the world around us. May we be a church that rests and labors in light of the finished work of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that anyone who turns to Christ in repentance and faith can be saved through his life, death, and resurrection. May we as a church cherish this truth. Would you raise up leaders at Christ Church who defend this truth and who live it out? Father, we want to be a church that celebrates year two and five and ten and uh, beyond. Uh, we want to be a church uh, that um, yeah, declares your love and mercy and forgiveness to the city of Halifax. Uh, Father, uh, grow us up and grow us out. Um, uh, give Mike, give future leaders at Christ Church wisdom in how to deal with the cultural issues of our day um, that uh, seek to divide and, and tear down the good news of the gospel. Father, we rely on your spirit to do this work in each of our hearts. Uh, we need you. Um, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.